Hello, fellow rebel capitalists. Hope you're well. <laughs> and you can hear Mike asking me if he should pull back his lights. I think you're good to go, buddy. You're good to go. And everybody knows who you are. And you're an absolute legend in the space. So they're not going to care about the lighting, Mike. I can assure you of that. But thanks for being on the Rebel Capitalist channel. Well, thanks for the flattering introduction. I'm not sure what kind of legend I am. But, but you know, I uh, do try. We were just talking, you and I about digging into the monetary system and having this need to understand things yeah. and then explain it to other people. And all these uh, people in the financial system, they don't under actually understand the system that they're part of. I just yeah. I find that interesting. And, you know, my book, The Great Gold and Silver Rush of the 21st Century, which was just released, you got an advanced copy. Um, it... Uh, um, digs deep into this and ex it explains that. But, you know, unfortunately, if you title it uh, something about economics or monetary history or something like that, it doesn't sell well. Yeah. Uh, right now, gold and silver are noodling sideways. So this isn't a period of great sales. It's when gold and silver are soaring. But it, you know, says gold and silver on the cover, but you're going to get a whole lot more than that. Anyway. Mm -hmm. So oh, that's. That human psychology is interesting, isn't it? It is. It is. So, why do you think it's important to really understand the, the plumbing? If you're someone that values freedom, liberty, free market capitalism, the the, the principles of, of sound money, who cares how the euro dollar system works? Who cares how the primary dealers buying mortgage backed securities impacts M two money supply? Does it really matter to me, Mike? Or why should it matter? Because this causes all of the economic cycles and mm -hmm. there is a wealth transfer that goes on. Basically, you know, one of the parts of chapter four, because uh, I believe you're going to refer to some of the stuff in chapter yep. four, yep. is about the $7 trillion theft. And uh, the currency that we use, the public, the M2 currency supply, we use base currency, currency, a, a form of it, the currency in circulation. Uh, there's two forms of base currency. And then we use bank credit currency, which banks create when we take out a loan. It is loans and leases that create deposits, not the other way around. And, uh, and until 2008. And then suddenly deposits kept on growing, but loans and leases didn't. And there's a $7 trillion gap, and that's one-third of the currency supply. Uh, the currency supply was expanded by, you know, you take uh, loans and leases and then deposits are that plus another 50%. All of that is wealth that was stolen by di diluting the currency supply and adding to it in some other process. It wasn't Main Street that, uh, that benefited by uh, a store or a, somebody buying a house, which means that, you know, if, if, you, if a house is being built, there's plumbers, there's electricians, there's contractors there it's the economy actually happening and right. growing it wasn't main street it was wall street it's people that play with numbers they push digits around in computers and uh they get they got a wealth transfer of it's a third of the currency supply it's huge uh, and this was all from ben bernanke's ideas that he put forward in a paper calling deflate called deflation making sure it doesn't happen here it's a speech that he did in uh, 2002, I believe it was. In my first book, my whole career was based on that one paper. It was a roadmap to the future. And if you read that before the 2008 
financial crisis, you knew exactly what the Fed was going to do. And they did it. They did. When did he come out with that, Mike? 2002. And uh, in there, uh, there was about 10 different things the Fed could do when it becomes zero bound. Right. The Fed still has options once they reach the zero bound when it comes to interest rates and they can't take interest rates any lower. He said they're not out of the ammunition. They can do this, this, this. And they did like seven of the 10 things. And the other three things they have yet to do. <laughs> but they'll be done in the next crisis. Yeah. You know, an interesting fact you, you might enjoy is I've been doing a lot of research on the late 1800s lately. Wow. Comparing specific 30-year time frames as far as nominal GDP, compounded CPI, and M2. Yeah. And I, I, I understand that back then the numbers are a little skewed because you don't have perfect data, but we don't have perfect data now either. But I think what you get a kick out of is the increase in M2 money supply from 1870 to 1900, roughly, mm -hmm. was about 400%. But during that 30-year time frame, we had about 45% deflation. So, yeah. so what this proved, and now let's fast forward from 1990 to 2020, we had the same increase in M2, believe it or not, 400%. But this time, instead of having 45% deflation, we had about 125% inflation. So this perfectly illustrates your point that it's not just the increase in currency units, but why are we increasing the currency units? If the yeah. banking system is doing that without the Federal Reserve, without the central planners, without the authoritarians, and they have to keep those loans on their balance sheet, and wouldn't you know it, they loan for productive things and we get more goods and services. So as the money supply increases, we actually see prices go down. Whereas if we start increasing money supply or to financialize the economy or for consumption, we get the exact opposite. We don't see prices going down. We see prices going up. Yeah, that's very interesting. And, you know, in I think it's chapter uh, six in the book, I do show a chart where we took, um, I think, we averaged every three or four years or five years of uh, debt to GDP, basically, to show uh, the growth that we get in GDP for each dollar that we borrow. We would get between six and eight dollars worth of growth. We'd borrow a dollar back in uh, just after World War II and get six to eight dollars worth of growth. And, and as of 2008, this went negative. And now when we borrow a dollar, the economy shrinks by 50%. And uh, it's per dollar, right? Yeah. It's it's like where people don't realize it, but that's the beginning of a death spiral. When, I mean, they, they think that we could, the Congress seems to think that we can borrow and spend our way out of this pit of debt that we're in. And we can't. It's not possible. But to me, that makes a lot of sense from the standpoint if we're to assume that as the debt to GDP increases, most likely so is government spending as a percentage of GDP. And if you just take that to an, to an extreme, let's just assume government spending was 100% of GDP. Well, I would imagine that economy isn't very efficient. <laughs> so, so you're not going to have too much real GDP growth there. Right. And then there's the interest on that debt. You keep on borrowing and... and then eventually you have to borrow to cover the interest. And it's like, uh, you know, 
spending on credit cards and then eventually financing your payments on one credit card by charging it on another. Yeah. Uh, it's a death spiral eventually. And yeah, it's taken a yeah. hundred years to get here, but I think we're here. <laughs> yeah, we've definitely been kicking the can down the road for a long time. You know what I always try to wrestle with is the idea of uh, Triffin's Dilemma. And we all know what that is in terms of dollars, where now all of a sudden the United States in 1944 were officially the reserve currency. So it's our duty to supply the world with the dollars the world needs to grow at maximum capacity. So the only way to do that is to run these huge trade deficits, which is detrimental to the domestic economy. So this is the paradox, of course. But now it seems like we're almost in the same type of paradox, but instead of with the dollar, with U.S. treasuries and with, with the debt, because the globe and the world needs all of these treasuries. You know, right. it's, the the foundation. it's the foundation of the banking system. Exactly. They want these treasuries to be able to borrow them and loan them and every single day. Exactly. So plumbing of the financial system. Yeah, so it puts the government in a position where, oddly enough, they have this paradox where they have to continue to run these massive uh, budget deficits and, and, and create all of these new treasuries, i.e. spend more money, more government deficits, just to support the house of cards that is now the global monetary system. It's like yeah. another whole other layer of Triffin's paradox. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. I mean, I don't have any comments on it other than, you know, there was this this friend of mine that I with the, he was a financial commentator that went by the name the Mugambo Guru. His name was Richard Dotty, and he was the funniest guy in economics. <laughs> he kept on repeating, "We're freaking doomed." <laughs> <laughs> and I I think you know everybody except I I do think that there's going to be a few things that do really well in what's coming, and my bets have been placed on mostly precious metals, a few cryptos, but I don't know, you know, we've never seen the performance of cryptos in a currency crisis yet. It might be major. It might be a panic uh, out of those things to cover other assets. You know, um, I have, I have no idea when it comes to uh, cryptocurrencies. So uh, I've placed my bets mostly on precious metals and I've got a bunch of farmland and mm. that's it. So, so let, before we get into the book, Mike, why don't we go over kind of the punchline? And I think okay. what you're doing there is you're kind of outlining the, let's say the, the fragility in the current system and the global monetary system. And the conclusion there is in this world of uncertainty, it's wise to at least have part of your portfolio in something that has been certain for 5,000 years. Yeah, the punchline, you know, um, when it comes to um, the monetary system, precious metals versus other assets and all of the currencies that are out there, there's these ebbs and flows. It, just, it swings like a pendulum. And there are these times when there's like major panic. And it's very interesting that all of the uh, central banks in the East have been loading up on precious metals. The central banks in the West were divesting themselves of precious metals, but now they, you know, they stopped that a while back. They realized, well, maybe this isn't the, the best idea. Uh, and uh, so um, I think that, you know, there's these cycles. And if you look at the purchasing power of precious metals 
throughout history, it's sort of, you know, how much roof can an ounce of gold put over your head? How much clothing can you buy? How many groceries? Uh, things like that. And it's got a range of purchasing power. And it's been very low since uh, it's been competing with all these other alternate financial assets uh, for the, you know, um, I, I believe that the purchasing power of gold was, you know, there's this myth that uh, that an ounce of gold would clothe a man from head to tail to from head to toe in ancient Rome, and it does today. So a toga, a belt, a pair of sandals. Oh, I always thought that was true. Fire. Well, it is true, but it varies in a range. If you go into the Great Depression, an ounce of gold bought you a great suit, belt, and shoes. But by 1970, an ounce of gold was worth 35 bucks. <laughs> what kind of full suit from head to toe? And shoes and belt can you get for 35 bucks? Maybe something from a secondhand store with holes in it, but not a very good one. And now you've got $2,000 gold, so it can buy a decent one, but a fine man's suit and belt and shoes is going to cost more than that. So, you know, it, it varies in this range. Sometimes uh, it'll, it'll purchase you a whole lot more than that. Maybe 10 suits, I don't know. When... All of these other uh, financial assets become mistrusted, including currencies. If people seek gold, then the purchasing power should go up many fold. And right. what I try and look at is purchasing power. And I'm glad to hear you uh, calling the dollar and the euro and stuff currencies instead of money. <laughs> I started this back in like 2006 when I was writing my book. And I had this realization, you know, that you look at the, um, the, what, the attributes that money is supposed to have. And the very first thing, even on the Fed's website, a store of value. And so in the book, I say, you know, if somebody, if, if you're having a conversation with somebody and they disagree and they say that their currency is money, that you're wrong, if you're claiming that, uh, that the stuff that everybody is calling money today, all of these national fiat currencies, if you're claiming that they are money, ask, if you're claiming there are, they aren't money and whoever you're talking to is claiming they are. Ask that person, is money supposed to be a store of value? Should Is that one of the things that it's got to be? Should it store value? And they're going to say yes. Then ask them, is there inflation? Right. <laughs> and well, of course there is. Like, yeah. Then you got to think, well, aren't those two things mutually exclusive? If there's inflation, the currency is losing value and it is not money. Yeah, by definition. Yeah. You know, what's funny, Mike, is uh, about four weeks ago, I was in Istanbul, and I'm sure you know they've really struggled with inflation uh, to the tune. I think the official numbers are like 60% per year, but in reality, it's like 100% per year. So I was there for a few days, and of course, you know, I'm asking every single person that would listen, what are you doing in your personal life? to deal with the, the prices going up so much. And the first thing that struck me is I thought that I would just see massive poverty and just the economy crush. And that's actually not what I saw. Uh, their economy, at least in Istanbul, uh, and this was part of the earthquakes and whatnot, seemed to be doing pretty darn well. But hmm. what what happened is I, I pulled probably 10 people, let's say, and every single one of them was doing the same thing, is they were earning lira, they were spending lira, but at the end of the week, anything they had left over, they were immediately switching into either dollars, euros, or gold. So what they did is they took your definition of money 
and actually achieved that with two completely separate currencies. From the standpoint of that, lira was their uh, unit of account and medium of exchange, but their store of value was either gold, the dollar, or the euro. And I found that fascinating. Yes, yeah. Um, you know, another proof of the difference between uh, money and currency, the dollar uh, used to buy one twentieth of an ounce of gold. And today it buys not just, you know, if it was down by 90%, that would be one two hundredth of an ounce, but it's one two thousandth of an ounce roughly. So it's lost 99% of its value since the Fed has been in charge. And it's great to hear that these uh, people that you uh, talked with have come up with a way of protecting themselves. Um, you know, I, I show these examples of Zimbabwe currency all the time because I used to have, I don't know, uh, I think it was 16 quintillion dollars sitting on my desk. <laughs> I had these bricks of $100 trillion bills. Yeah. And when I'd send somebody a book, uh, they I, I would have the people shipping the book stick a, a $100 trillion bill in it as a bookmark. Right, right. Um, and uh, uh, I have a $1 bill, and that was from 2007, and it would purchase something. And the, 2000, the 2008 $100 trillion bill would not. That's how fast that happened. And when uh, Rhodesia became Zimbabwe, I believe the exchange rate was one Zimbabwe dollar was worth a buck fifty three or a buck fifty six U.S. So it, was, it, it had fifty percent more purchasing power than the U.S. dollar, and they just absolutely destroyed that through deficit spending and printing to make up the difference. Um, now that's not going to happen that rapidly with a uh, a global reserve currency, but the problem is we've abused the privilege. This was a great privilege. The Bretton Woods system. You know, it's a complete accident that the U.S. dollar became the world's reserve currency. It was having world wars where the war was not on our, our soil. It was on uh, other soil. And uh, during those wars, I, I believe in World War I, the U.S. gold stocks went up 70% during that war. And then on top of that in World War II, it was another 118%. And then their stocks meeting the supply. The supply of gold in the central bank gold, the, the treasury gold before the Federal Reserve, and then central bank gold after the Federal Reserve. But uh, what it meant was that by the end of World War II, you know, uh, in, before World War I, it was Great Britain was the hub of the gold standard, and they were the economic powerhouse of the world. Uh, 25% of the world's landmass, 25% of the world's GDP. Uh, after World War I, uh, we shared the responsibility of the uh, gold standard and the, the settlement, the clearinghouses were the New York Fed and the Bank of England uh, and in the interwar gold standard, uh, the gold exchange standard. It fell apart and, and England pulled out of it uh, you know, shortly into the Great Depression. Uh, the England pulled out of the gold standard and would no longer uh, stand by, you know, redeem British pounds for gold. And so the U.S. became the, the last man standing. And then with World War II, uh, you know, with all the combatants in Europe and Asia having to 
uh, take all their young men off of the farms and turn them into soldiers and turn their economies toward war where they stopped making consumer goods and, and only made machine guns and tanks and weapons of death. Uh, they had to import everything from the United States, all the consumer goods, a lot of grains and such, and our gold stocks went up another 117%. By the end of World War II, the U.S. had half of all the above-ground gold and two-thirds of all the world's central bank gold, so the monetary system wasn't going to work unless we came up with a new one, and the new one was the Bretton Woods system that made the, the, uh, the dollar backed by gold, so every central bank had to hold dollars, and that, and then when when uh, the Bretton Woods system fell apart in 1971, and Nixon took us off of it, the they tried to do. I think it was the Washington Accord or the Smithsonian Agreement. I can't remember the names of all these things, but there was a new monetary system that was a planned monetary system that just immediately fell apart within days, and we ended up with these floating exchange rates and the global dollar standard. It's, it's a complete accident, <laughs> but it's a privilege that since uh, George Bush Jr., uh, we, we, we've been weaponizing the dollar and we've been doing these massive deficit spending that, uh, and uh, expanding the currency supply, and inflation respects no borders. You expand the currency supply and dilute it, you're stealing purchasing power from anyone holding dollars, regardless of what kind. And so um, we've had that causes a massive wealth transfer from the entire planet to the U.S. We've had this extraordinary privilege uh, that Charles de Gaulle called the um, how did he phrase it? Extraordinary. Uh, I can't remember. Exorbitant privilege. Exorbitant privilege. Yes, and uh, and we've abused it to a point where we're going to lose that privilege. Uh, as soon as there is a reasonable alternative. The only reason that we're still a global uh, reserve currency is because there's no reasonable alternative yet. But China, Russia, all the BRICS countries, uh, everybody would like uh, to have an alternative, a way out of this system where we get to be the house in Las Vegas. Yeah, yeah. And I think that the dollar has such a powerful network. That's really the... You know, we think about Facebook and the network effect or Google yeah. or one of these tech companies. But when you really start to understand the global monetary system, you see clearly there has never been a stronger network ever, in my opinion, than the United States dollar right now and these in these banks and creating the dollar denominated debt and all these things. So I, I when when I try to think through how the dollar loses reserve status, I always go back to, it's not just the BRIC nations, you know, trading uh, oil for yuan or something like that, but it's also looking at the global dollar denominated debt. And yeah, when I start to really see that come down as far as a percentage of overall debt, that's when I know the dollar is, is, is slowly kind of slipping away because once we get to a point where the, the globe doesn't really need dollars to transact uh, and that dollar denominated debt isn't creating more demand for future dollars, then that's kind of the, the, the roller coaster on the way down. Yeah, you know, I've really, really never given that aspect a whole lot of thought. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, I would imagine that once there is a, a viable alternative, 
and there's all this denom dollar denominated debt down there. And uh, uh, there would be a number of countries that would just say, I'm not paying. <laughs> well, right now, to your point, the way we've weaponized the dollar, and I don't think there's ever been a greater display of that than when Russia invaded Ukraine. Yeah. And we came in and, and sanctioned them and basically took all their central bank dollar assets uh, that were obviously a liability of someone other than Russians. <laughs> they found that out very quickly. And I'm not saying that was, you know, we could go into debating whether that was good or bad. On net balance, I think that was the wrong thing to do when you look at cost benefit. But the bottom line. Right. It might have been a short term solution that was very bad for the long term problem. Yeah, and I, I think it even caused short-term problems, you know, with their inflation rate and the energy uh, problems that they've had in Europe. But uh, if you're a country that's even friendly to the United States and you see them do that, that was absolutely unprecedented. Yes. And you're looking at your own central bank saying, okay, by the way, how many dollars do we have? and uh, Or how many treasuries do we have? Oh, we've got a lot. And, oh, that's... My counterparty is the United States, and what if they don't like me in the next five years or the next 10 years? Right. Now, all of a sudden, all my assets just poof, go up in smoke, and I think we definitely increased the rate of the globe, kind of, quote-unquote, de-dollarizing. But then that's this other cross-current that's competing with dollar-denominated debt creating future demand for dollars as well. So. It's, I always look at it as like the ocean and you've got all these cross currents that are at play at any given time. And it's not a matter of if we have uh, deflation or inflation as an example. It's, it's which cross current is overwhelming all of the others to really move the needle. And I, that, that's really the, the challenge and kind of the, the Rubik's Cube that we all try to figure out. Yeah. Uh, what did you want to talk about regarding the book? Let's shoot into this uh i'm going to go over to it right now mike i'm screen sharing chapter four i think yeah okay. yeah then everybody know that chapter chapters three and four chapter three is easy it's an easy read it's friendly uh these are available online at ggsr21.com so it's great gold and silver rush 21 ggsr21.com uh, go there. You can download these, email them to anybody you want. There's some videos that uh, help cover it. But um, uh, the chapter four is the really hard stuff that if you can understand it and hold all of these things in your mind at once, everybody can see the entire economy differently. They can see through, you know, this the hocus pocus that's been going on. Yeah, and I think that's just such a huge edge, isn't it, Mike? When you're trying to build your portfolio, if you understand that, you're ahead of 99.999% of investors. Exactly, right. And uh, it, but it is, and you know, I can't tell you how many times this book is more than 3,000 hours of my time. Mm. And I had a crew of another four people helping me research, make charts. Uh, stuff was written then rewritten by an editor slash ghostwriter, then I would rewrite it again. 95 to 99% of it is actually my writing, but sometimes it would be rewritten completely, and then I would rewrite that. It goes back and forth and back and forth, trying to make it understandable, just trying to uh, get some of these economic processes across so that it doesn't 
give people PTSD, the post-traumatic <laughs> stress disorder, because uh, some of this is causes brain freeze. I've tried my best, but uh, at at the a decision was made at the last minute. Uh, Dan Rubach uh, gave me back a chapter. We needed to cut some pages from the book because I produced the book in color, which is expensive. And then uh, um, it came out, we were doing it in uh, Word, but we did it on eight and a half by 11 paper with uh, double spacing. And when we put it into the files there, the book size, it ended up being uh, like, we had to cut a third of the book out of it. So it was like online, this was part of the solution. And I'm so glad we did because since it's been online, I have rewritten this chapter probably five, six times. Uh, so it's this chapter I've put, put probably another 200 hours of work since the book was, the book was actually finished last October, <laughs> but then we started the battle of trying to get this listed on Amazon. It is so difficult these days. It's, it's amazing. Uh, and we're still sort of battling with it. They'll, they have a cap on how many books we can ship to their warehouse. We can only ship 500 books. You sell those, and then there's no more books on Prime. And so they're punishing basically the buyer of the book because when it's not on Prime, you have to pay shipping. And, and they're punishing me because when they have to pay shipping, there's less books sold. And uh, so hopefully that will be lifted shortly because we've shown that this is a good seller and it's not going to clog up their warehouse or something. So Well, I can't suggest the book enough, Mike. I had the time to go through that chapter you're referring to, chapter four, and it's absolutely brilliant. Hey guys, I want to remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts, Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Serezna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options. Tony Greer, commodity trading. Jason Hartman, real estate. And Brent Johnson with macroeconomics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow rebel capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. One of the skills you have, one of your greatest skills, is very similar to my good buddy Robert Kiyosaki. And that Kiyosaki has this incredible talent of being able to take something very complex and put it in terms that everybody can understand. And and you do the exact same thing, Mike. You, you, you've been doing it your whole career, but you definitely do it with this book. And as someone that talks about the, the plumbing of the financial system on my whiteboard videos constantly, as I went through this part of the book, I couldn't help but smile. And why? Because... I, I see so few people, especially in the sound money space, that really geek out and understand how crucial it is to get your head around how the system works. But you just do that 
beautifully. And I think out of all the people in the sound money space, you definitely get the the plumbing of the financial system better than anybody. Well, you know, thank you very much. I do want to make a, a comment. You mentioned Robert Kiyosaki. Uh, you know, back in, I think it was 2004 or five, I took a course with, uh, I went to an event uh, called uh, The Dollar Crisis with Robert Kiyosaki, I think back in 2003 and then 2004. And then uh, took a course with him that was three three-day uh, events spread out over nine months and I paid for it in gold. <laughs> uh, it was like a $9,000 course. It was uh, how to present. And, you know, this was exercises and he puts you up on stage and, and uh, tells you, well, you can't use an acronym unless you define what that is and, uh, and how to reduce things to very simple language and stuff. And then I went on tour with Robert Kiyosaki, and this was during the height of the real estate bubble. So the uh, real estate guru of gurus, and I uh, went to, I think, um, it was a dozen different countries with them in a period. Of, and then, uh, there was the, the biggest event was in Los Angeles with 30,000 people in the audience. That's two oh, Hollywood wow. Bowls. Wow. Uh, they then uh, 10,000 in Atlanta, Chicago, Boston, and 20,000 in New York. Uh, and then Colombia, Peru, uh, Singapore, Malaysia, uh, Australia, New Zealand, and, and so on. Uh, Columbia, yeah, Columbia, I said that. Uh, and uh, it was it was very interesting working with him and watching him, and it has benefited me for the rest of my life. So it's interesting that you could see the parallel there. Uh, I was a protege of his. He, he taught me. Yeah, the, it, it, it shows. I, I think maybe he's learned a lot from you as well, Mike. Uh, but <laughs> going, going through, I'm at part three right now, uh -huh. and uh, reserves not required. Now, you talk about the $200 billion gift you never intended yeah. to give. And uh, I, I can't recall specifically, but I think what you're referring to is prior to the GFC, the banks weren't paid interest on their reserves. And post-GFC, they are paying interest on the reserves. And you pose the very good question, who's paying it? <laughs> who's paying for those for, for all this money that's right. going to the, the banksters now that they have $4 trillion? You know, maybe, maybe it's down to $3 trillion now. But they're getting all this interest on their, quote-unquote, excess reserves. Who's paying? And then you kind of connect the dots and say, it's you, the taxpayer. Right. Yeah, the Fed is supposed to turn over all of their profits to uh, the Treasury to either reduce the deficit or pay down the debt. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the Fed, most people would think, well, the Fed will just print the dollars, and that's where the, the interest is coming from. But they can't just print. They can only print if they buy some. They've got to have an asset to reflect every liability, and the liability are the dollars that they create. Yep. And so they have to buy an asset, and those assets that they buy are uh, treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. And so uh, what the, the profits that the Fed makes that they're supposed to turn over to the Treasury are the, uh, the interest that those Treasury bonds that they buy by counterfeiting currency into existence. They buy this, the, the Treasuries pay interest, the mortgage-backed securities pay interest. Where does that interest come from? your future tax payments and your future mortgage payments. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> it's us paying the bill. And since this is not being turned over to the uh, Treasury, but given to the banks instead as a free gift, because Ben Bernanke is the one that shoved, you know, him and then Powell followed his uh, lead, but shoved all of this $3 trillion, it was $4.2 trillion at one point of reserves on the bank's balance sheets. And then they they want the banks to just leave it there. Um, uh, so they started paying interest. Uh, so it was a gift. The banks didn't even want this excess currency. They got by with just $40 billion roughly. Yeah. Of they didn't need $4.2 trillion. All they needed was $40 billion with a B. And that was enough to make the whole system work. And then there was Required reserves and excess reserves back then. Uh, required reserves, uh, this included vault cash. Yep. Uh, so you look at loans and leases versus deposits and so on, and, and you have to deduct currency in circulation, but, but uh, vault cash is part of their reserves. And so the actual excess reserves that they're using for interbank settlement was just a slim... A, 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 tiny little slice of the currency supply. And today it's huge. And now we're paying interest on it. And it is the public that's paying. And they're paying twice because not only did this not go to the treasury to pay down the debt, but the treasury now has to issue more bonds to make up that difference. They've got to issue more uh, debt, and which requires us to pay and your children and your children's children. <laughs> we'll be paying for this. And it was all Ben Bernanke's great idea back in 2002. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, what makes it even more crazy, Mike, is as Jerome Powell increases interest rates, that's more and more interest that he's paying the banksters. Yes. Because the, just for clarification, and you just nailed it, the, the the reason they have to pay interest on those reserves is because if they didn't, there's so many reserves in the system that the natural interest rate would be zero at all times. They, they, they wouldn't be able to raise the Fed funds rate. So as they raise the Fed funds rate, that just exacerbates what you're talking about, more interest to the bankers than the taxpayer right. inevitably has to pay, uh, it has to give up more of their purchasing power to Jamie Dimon basically, as, as yeah. the Fed tries to, quote-unquote, fight inflation. Yeah, if you take the $3 trillion, roughly, that the banks have, it as re they, it, the reserves have shrunk from 4.2 down to about $3 trillion. But we're, what, 4.6 now on the Fed funds rate? <laughs> take $3 trillion <laughs> times 4.6% divided by 12 months, and you'll, you'll find that we're paying them about $11 billion a month, that it's raining free currency on these banks, normally they would have to work for currency. They would have desks and power being consumed and have to make an investment in computers and phones and employees, and they would have to work for that. They're getting $11 billion a month of, of very high power currency because it's just pure profit to the bottom line. And uh, a couple of parts later, I show the correlation of this reigning of free currency on the stock markets rising. And so right now, uh, you know, the stock markets uh, rose for a while and they broke a downtrend line, which is a positive thing. That downtrend line should act as support when the crash 
be you know starts to continue. Yeah. And I said in the book that because of this interest, and this was written back in October uh, of last year, uh, because of this interest, we will probably see some sort of bear market rally uh, in the middle of this. This is a correction of of a warping of the. That's what people need to understand, and that's the reason they should get the book is because this is a warping of the economy where uh, wealth is being transferred from Main Street to Wall Street, the financialization of the economy, and it pumped the markets and the low real estate, uh, the, the low interest pumped up real estate into massive bubbles that need yeah. to be corrected. And when you get into chapter five, which is the almost everything bubble, I show the scale of the bubbles. And then there's two economists out of Europe that had done a study where they took 17 advanced countries and looked at their um, their stock market capitalization to the GDP of the country going all the way back into the 1800s. We never yeah. had data before that went back before the 50s on the Buffett indicator, the size of the economy compared to the value of the stock markets. And so people, a lot of people thought this upward trend over time was natural, and it is not natural. We've been in a hyper bubble since the late 90s, and uh, the, during the global financial crisis, they only allowed it to come down and barely touch fair value, and then they papered over that financial crisis and drove it into another hyperbubble. And so now we've got the almost everything bubble, but this distortion is all caused by papering over everything, and those things eventually break. And so you will there, there's going to be a wealth transfer, and you will participate. Everybody that has died, well, everybody around the globe will participate to one extent or another. Uh, it, and it's all up to the individual as to whether or not uh, they are a victim or a beneficiary of this wealth transfer. And, yeah. 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 And wealth and, transfer. And from, your huh? wealth transfer you're talking about, to be clear, are people who own a depreciating form of money as a store of value. Depreciating form of currency. Stolen from them. Right. The wealth yeah. is going to be stolen from them and then given to people who hold assets or people who hold a, a, a the true type of money. Yeah. And that's money that fits all of those um, uh, checkpoints that you go over. And, you know, the final one, the most important one being that store of value. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you're holding any asset, too, that has been inflated into a hyper bubble, um, you know, there's a lot of real estate that is still a value around the planet, but not much. Most of it has been blown into a hyper bubble. The reason yeah. we didn't see any inflation during all of this massive currency creation from 2008 until 2018 was because the method that they create currency, it has to go into the financial system. It can't go directly into groceries and gasoline. It doesn't go into the pockets of Main Street. It goes into the bank accounts of Wall Street. And that's that's the method, you know, by going through the primary dealers, the Fed is handcuffed that way. The Federal Reserve Act, and I believe that this was to keep the, the Federal Reserve from being able to show favoritism or give our artificial profits to banks by being able, they couldn't, they can't deal directly with a bank and buy bonds from the bank. They have to go through a primary dealer that is a non-bank entity and who then 
buys from the open market, but they also participate in treasury auctions and stuff. They're market makers. Um, uh, so that's, I believe the reason is so that they have to do a bidding system and the lowest bid wins. So that the Federal Reserve, when they're creating dollars, the asset that they buy is at the lowest price possible. I think that's what Congress was trying to do. But the result is that the plumbing causes all of these reserves to get stuck and it causes the inflation of the stock markets and, and this big uh, market for bonds that really shouldn't exist. In a free market, it wouldn't exist. So the entire economy would be very, very different if the central banks didn't exist. You wouldn't, the biggest buildings in every city on the planet would not be buildings with bank names on them. And banks would exist to serve us. Uh, if we didn't have this voodoo uh, double, this is all just double entry bookkeeping. When you go to the bank you the uh, to borrow some currency, you usually borrow because you're buying something. So the bank says, well, go out and find an asset. You find a house and you go, here's this house that I found. I want to borrow a, a million dollars. And the, the bank looks at you at your history and says, okay, I think this guy's going to be able to pay us back. They imagine a million dollars into your <laughs> bank account, and they imagine a million dollars uh, debt as far as the loan that you're going to owe, but you're also going to owe plus interest. And then, so that new currency sprang into existence that second, and uh, as you pay back the principal, it meets the debt and reduces the debt, and those dollars vanish when they meet the debt. So this is... Yeah. The, the economy, the growth of, of the currency supply is constantly borrowing just a little bit more currency into existence than we're extinguishing by paying down the debt. And it's mathematically impossible to pay the debt under a system like this. We've got more than $90 trillion worth of debt, and the M2 currency supply is like, what, $21 trillion? $21.5 I think, to pay $90 trillion worth. Now, to be fair, corporate bonds and stuff, when... It, it's when the Federal Reserve uh, uh, buys something, currency is created. When a bank loans currency, it's created. When a corporation sells a bond, uh, it's not uh, creating currency. And when you pay that, uh, when when they have to make a profit and then pay you back out of that profit. Yep. So that currency, that, that debt that exists, corporate bonds and stuff, uh, that isn't going to... Uh, when when it's paid back, the dollars don't get extinguished. So those dollars continue circulating. Yeah, we don't need uh, ninety trillion to pay back ninety trillion. But uh, I don't think <laughs> twenty one trillion isn't enough to pay all of the uh, the uh, principal debt that we owe on dollars that were borrowed into existence. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> No, no problem. It's a fantastic explanation, Mike. And just the way I try to keep it easy in my mind is I always ask myself, okay, the, the counterparties involved, if a banking entity is buying from a non-bank, it's going to increase M2, all else being equal. And if a non-bank is buying from a bank, then it's going to decrease M2 money supply. And that's kind of what I use as a starting point. And then I go through the whole entire transaction from A to B try to determine how that impacted the amount of currency units on net balance. But I think that the main takeaway is people have to start studying this. I, I think it's, we're going into such a tumultuous time 
that you can either be prepared, you can either educate yourself on how this stuff works, or you're going to be a victim. Yes, absolutely. Like you said, everybody will participate. Wealth will be transferred toward you or away from you. Depends on the knowledge that you arm yourself. Yeah, and 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 pe- that's one of the main reasons why people need to go out and get this book, because. <laughs> you, but I'm I'm serious here because you can sit there and watch Jeff Snyder. Most people know who are watching who my buddy Jeff Snyder is. But when Jeff is so darn smart and he knows this stuff like the back of his hand, but it's very esoteric, and in a way Jeff kind of speaks Greek for for most people. It's like you're listening to someone that's speaking Chinese because he's so in the weeds on all this. But what you do is you take what Jeff is talking about, you put that into simple English so the average Joe and Jane can really get their head around it, give them that edge we're talking about so they can be prepared to make sure that they're not a financial victim uh, throughout the rest of the 2020s going into a fourth turning. Thanks. You know, that's uh, something that Robert Kiyosaki taught me. Um, yeah. You know, he, he would make us go over and over that. <laughs> I mean, he is like a... Uh, a, a boot camp drill instructor. Uh, oh, I know. Comes to <laughs> all of this stuff. Uh, he insists on perfection, and uh, it it was a, a great training. So I owe Robert Kiyosaki a debt of gratitude because he really did launch my career. Uh, my yeah, book, yeah. my first book, was originally published as a rich dad book. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, and so yeah. Well, Mike, we've been talking for almost an hour. My buddy is, are there any other things that you want the people to know about the book before they go out and buy it? Well, first of all, learn as much as you can about the the global monetary system and how the economy works and economics, because we just need a whole bunch of people to dig into this system and really look at it and explain it to each other. Because the more you dig into it, the more you find it, figure out that this system is fundamentally an evil system. The whole thing works by enslaving, you know, and I was cautioned not to use the words slave, slavery, or enslavement I in the book by all of my friends and colleagues, because today it's intertwined, intertwined with racism. But there is no other word in the English language that I can use. Uh, th- this is a permanent indentured servitude. Uh, you're forcing one man to work for the benefit of another with no compensation, and that is enslavement. And uh, the system does this, and people don't see it. More people need to start seeing it. In order for a dollar to exist, there has to be a debt in the future, and that debt is going to be extracted from somebody either paying taxes, where it's coerced. There's a, a government basically, you know, they're not point literally pointing a gun at you, but it is enforced at gunpoint. If you don't pay your taxes, you go to jail. If you decide you don't want to go to jail and you barricade in yourself, yourself in your house, you're going to see some guns staring you in the face. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, it is literally an evil system that is like, I will not uh, invest right now. Bonds might be a good investment. Uh, they're uh, paying high yields, and there's going to be a crisis, and those yields are going to fall. And when the yields fall, the bond price goes up, and you can sell the bonds that you bought at the high yields for a big profit at that point. I won't, inv- I won't invest in them, though, because I feel like it's participating in the slave trade. It is uh, an evil system, and I do not want to support uh, that system. You know, 
we used to use real money and real money being gold and silver because they're the only things that have proven themselves to be real money throughout the centuries. They've lasted now as money for 2,500 years and one of the primary mediums of exchange for about 5,000 years. They became money when they were uh, refined into uh, high grades of gold and silver that were separate. So it wasn't mixed. It wasn't electrum, it's called when it's mixed. Uh, and uh, they were minted into coins of equal weight. So each one had a specific value and you could then put a price on something. That happened about 2,500 years ago in Lydia. And um, when you're using what I, you know, I don't say sound money. I say honest money because currency is dishonest. It's, it's uh, a system that exists in the shadows and you have to work really hard to see what's going on. Um, and it, it uh, basically, in, one, in chapter four, I do disclose that the whole system is based on IOUs. And if you dig down deep, what you're going to find is that they're promising to pay you, you, your, <laughs> your future hours, that you're going to have to work to support this system in the future. Uh, anyway, um, when you deal with honest money, the value that's in an ounce of gold, uh, that gold took a certain amount of uh, time, labor, capital to uh, prospect and find a deposit, turn it into a mine, uh, mine that into uh, ore, refine that ore into bars, melt those bars and mint those, mint those into coins. That amount of work equals the amount of work that you would have to uh, expend to acquire those coins. It's a fair trade. So much work for so much work. It's an absolutely fair trade. Then you want to buy a house. The amount of work and effort that it took to dig up the copper for the plumbing and wiring and uh, the cement and, and chop down all the trees for the wood and build that house equals the work that you put into acquiring those coins, which equals the work that it took to create those gold coins. Everything is a fair trade when you're dealing with honest money. Uh, when you're dealing with fiat currencies, it's, it, it is imagined into your bank account uh, by the banks, and then they charge you interest on this. There's no excess productivity. Huh? There's no excess productivity. Exactly. And you end up buying something with nothing. It's, it's, it's a dishonest, it's a fundamentally dishonest system. Uh, and, uh, and that's the reason I won't participate in the bond market. <laughs> yeah. That's it. And, and just to be clear, Mike, they can get chapter three and four right now, as we speak free of charge on yes. your website, which is r 21com Okay, great. And Josh, hey, Rose, right there on the screen. There. Thank you. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Free. And then when can people get the whole book on Amazon? Or the uh, rest it's available of now, uh, but Amazon sort of, it's been, the book was ready to be launched in November. Okay. Um, uh, and we have been battling to try and get this thing listed. There is, um, my previous publisher uh, listed a book with a very similar title. It's The Great Gold, Silver, and Crypto Rush of the 21st Century. It's still on Amazon. It's what comes up in the searches. So use the link from ggsr21.com. You'll get, end up getting 
to this book, the book that really does exist, not the one that doesn't exist. But it's it's uh, really been hurting us uh, having that old book up there. Uh, and if it if you can't order it with Prime, it's because Amazon caps the number of books that we can ship them. So we can ship them a certain amount of books, and then they take three days to get it from receiving it to being in stock and available, and then it's on Prime, and you don't have to pay the uh, shipping. If it if it says currently available, you know, see who's selling it, and you click through, and it's for sale. That's me, and uh, and it is for sale right now. Uh, but every time that Amazon runs out of them, um, they punish the buyer by making them uh, pay the shipping, and they punish me by reducing sales by causing the price of the book to go up. So, well, so uh, bottom line is it's worth the logistical challenge. Yeah, hopefully this ends very shortly because they're seeing that, yes, this is a real product and there's demand for it. So, uh, yeah. but yeah, uh, the book is, by the way, uh, it's not an inexpensive book. It's 39 bucks. And that's because it's full color all the way through, beautiful uh, charts. And there's a lot of charts that have uh, multiple lines on them. That's yeah. one of the reasons that I selected uh, to make this full color. And then it's on uh, coated paper, the very high grade. So it was a very expensive book to produce. There will be a cheaper version later that's uh, $10 less. It'll be black and white. It'll be harder to read the char charts. It'll be on regular, the they call it trade paper. There will be an ebook and there will be an audiobook. All of these things take time. Yeah. Somebody went on the website and left what they, you know, you can put reviews on there. They went on my Amazon page and they left three-star reviews. One of them complaining that there's no ebook. Now, is that a review when they don't actually have the book? <laughs> and, <laughs> and they're saying no ebook available, three stars. <laughs> And then the other one says, way too expensive. I'm not paying $39, lower the price. So that's a request and a complaint. That's what these things are. But three stars uh, lowers the, the difference between a four-star book and a five-star book. A four-star book probably sells 20% of what a five-star book sells. I've, I've got $200,000 of cash wrapped up in this book already and more than three thousand dollars of my life wrapped up in it and i have to get that i have to make something off of it and get that back eventually it's just simple economics or i'm never going to write anything again because of the loss that it causes i think it'll sell itself mike once people get it in their hands they're going to talk about it you're going to get the word of mouth it, i think it's it, it's going to do great when your viewers go to that page please don't uh, they, they, they see this button underneath the reviews. Was this helpful? And if you click that, you're not voting for the book to be cheaper. You're not voting for an ebook. What you're doing is you're voting to keep that review up at the top, damaging sales forever and making it so that I may decide not to write anything ever again. Uh, oh, get the book and give them a five-star review for heaven's sakes. If you could, and then... Or karma is uh, the gold and silver yeah. karma is going to get you. I promise. <laughs> and there's a button to re report this. Uh, I can't remember the the button that's not. Uh, you know, was this helpful? The other one report this as uh, uh, being bad. Uh, if you can click that button, it would really help. 
<laughs> reviews off there. They're, they're gonna, not reviews. They're gonna have like thousands of people going right. there and just uh, sure. and giving your troll a hard time. I am coming out with the ebook and so on, but it is a nightmare. You can't just like take this and put it into an ebook book format. Everything starts moving around. I've got paid, you know, there's pictures of Ben Bernanke, uh, Yellen, and Jerome Powell. Well, they come out one picture on a page with no text. One picture this big, one picture this big, one picture this big on a big old page with no text. <laughs> and this has to be something called responsive so that you can read it on your phone or a tablet. And it's yeah. really hard. And we were doing this back in October and I just had to drop it and come out with the book first. Then we will be able to do a black and white. And I'm this week, I'm going to be spending about 30 hours in the studio reading this thing so that I have an audio book. It is a lot of work doing these things. So please go easy on me on the reviews. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think I think they will, Mike. It, it's all going to work out in every single stage. Every time you get a, a something new to the book, the ebook, the audio book, whatever, we'll come on, talk about it, promote it more. And uh, and get more of those five star reviews, and more, most importantly, get people prepared for what's coming in the future, so they won't be that financial victim. That's what it's all about. Download the free chapters and email them to everybody you can. There you go. Uh, yeah. All right, buddy. I appreciate your time. Can't wait to do it again. Okay. Thanks.